Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 3 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. Hannibal the Cannibal is a fictional character from The Silence of the Lambs. He eats pieces of his victims. After he's caught, he is kept in a cell with a glass facade to be safely observed. The UK press has its own Hannibal the Cannibal. He is detained at Wakefield Prison in West Yorkshire. Since 1983, he has spent most of his time in the basement of Effwing. His cell, five and a half by four and a half meters, with bulletproof windows, was constructed specifically for him. A steel cage with a steel door surrounds the enclosure. A small hole at the bottom of the cell allows food and other items to be passed through without contact. The interior is simple and sparse and engineered with durability and safety in mind. A concrete bed and sink are firmly bolted to the wall, as is the toilet. The furniture, a small table and chair are constructed from compressed cardboard. This is the home of Robert Maudsley. Born on June 26, 1952 to lorry driver George and his wife Jean in Speak Merseyside, Robert John Maudsley was the youngest of four children. His early years were unstable. At six months old, Robert and his siblings Brenda, Paul and Kevin were sent to live in Nazareth House, a Roman Catholic orphanage run by nuns located in the coastal town of Crosby. All four children were below the age of four 
and parents George and Jean couldn't cope with their young family. Paul II eldest recalled his time at Nazareth House to the Liverpool Echo newspaper in May 2003. It was a brilliant place, he said. We all went to school up the road in Little Crosby. We were happy. We spent nine years there and we were a real family unit. We looked upon the nuns as our parents. Our real parents never came to see us until towards the very end of those nine years. We didn't know them. I have no memories of them before we were at the orphanage. The children were uprooted and taken to live with their parents and a new sibling in Toxteth, an inner city area of Liverpool. The contrast between their new home with their parents and the old one with the nuns was stark. George and Jean didn't know how to communicate with their children. It wasn't long before beatings started with the exclusion of their eldest child, Brenda. In his interview with the press, Paul Maudsley said, It was just the old fella who hit us, with his fists, belt and sometimes a stick. But our ma instigated half of it. If we went to the shops instead of coming straight home, she would bring it to dad's attention and he would beat us. I think they were equally to blame. In my eyes, a mother is supposed to protect her children. Robert the youngest was bold and vocal about wanting to go back to live with the nuns. Less than a year into living with his parents, he was taken into foster care by social services after the six-month ordeal which Robert later described. He said, Once I was locked in a room for six months, and my father only opened the door to come in to beat me four to six times a day. He used to hit me with sticks or rods, and once he bust a twenty-two air rifle over my back. Robert's siblings remained with their parents, who would go on to have seven more children. He was the victim of sexual abuse at some point during his childhood, and by 16, the last six years of his life, had been spent in numerous foster homes. He fled Liverpool to live in London, and his father told Robert's siblings that he had died. Robert Maudsley made several failed suicide attempts and spent time receiving treatment in a number of psychiatric hospitals. On many occasions, he told doctors and staff that he could hear voices in his head telling him to kill his parents. From January to June 1973, he was admitted to Horton Hospital, and in September to October, he received treatment at West Park. In December of that year, he moved into his partner's flat on Merton Road in London, near King George's Park. He was making ends meet by working as a labourer and collecting money for Littlewood's catalogues on the side. It is widely speculated that he supplemented his income through sex work. He was a skilled labourer, but a terrible timekeeper, and his jobs didn't last for long. On March 10th, 1974, he was sacked. Three days later, on Wednesday, March 13th, he would commit his first murder. He went to Coventry Street in the West End of London with the purpose of finding someone to hurt. His first stop was the Texas Pancake House. When he couldn't see a suitable victim, he moved on to the Playland Arcade. He walked around and finally bumped into a couple of friends. One of those friends was John Farrell. They got talking and John invited Robert to stay at his place. Robert agreed, but before they took the underground to Wood Green, they stopped for a drink at the White Bear Inn in Piccadilly. When they got to John's house, Robert was told to wait outside. One of the occupants was John's landlord, 
and the rules stated no overnight visitors permitted. Robert waited and John returned when the coast was clear. They had to be quiet as the landlord was watching TV in the next room. While John made a cup of tea, Robert took a knife from the inside top pocket of his jacket and put it under the bed. From a drawer on his bedside table, John pulled a stack of pornographic magazines and gave them to Robert. They got into bed and engaged in sexual activity. Robert Maudsley later said, I thought then of killing him, but I went on masturbating him, thinking that the feeling might go and that I might not feel like killing him in the morning. The pair didn't go to sleep straight away. They spoke in whispered tones in bed so as to not be heard. At about ten past eight in the morning, Robert got up and made a cup of tea. He still had the same feeling that he wanted to hurt someone. John was still asleep. Robert knelt down under the bed to check if the knife was still there. After John woke up, they both had tea and smoked cigarettes by the gas fire in the bedroom. They went back to bed and while John drifted off to sleep, Robert got up and returned to sit by the fire. At 9.45am, John got out of bed and sent Robert to get some daily papers from the newsstand across the road while he got dressed. John cooked them both breakfast and Robert waited in the bedroom. He retrieved the knife from under the bed and returned it to his jacket pocket. They ate and drank some more tea. Robert still had the same urges. In a statement to police, he later said, John started talking about all of the boys he brought back to the flat. He asked me if I wanted to see some photographs. I said yes, and he took a suitcase from the table near to the chest of drawers by the door, went across to the bed, and started to look through the contents. He was sitting on the bed, three quarters facing me, going through the suitcase. Robert suddenly lunged across the room with the knife in his right hand and stabbed John in the chest. John fell back but managed to get up and say, I've got to get out. He tried to make it to the door but in his panic he stumbled over the armchair Robert had just been sitting in. As he fell, John knocked his head on the door and Robert Maudsley took the chance to stab John in the back. He told him he was sorry and said he had to do it. John's body was pulled out of the way of the door so his killer could get out. Before he left the room, Robert went to his victim's back pocket and took five pounds. In his statement, he said, I could have robbed the house, but all I wanted to do was kill someone. Robert put the knife back in its sheath and went upstairs to the bathroom to wash the blood off his hands. As he was drying them, he noticed his clothing was covered in blood. He didn't change and made his way down the street. He passed a vicarage, so he decided to ring the bell. The housekeeper answered, and Robert asked if he could see the vicar. He was told the vicar was in Holy Communion. Robert explained to the housekeeper that he had just killed someone, but was told to come back in an hour. He left and headed to a nearby phone box. After obtaining Wood Green Police Station's number from directory inquiries, Robert tried several times to direct the police to John Farrell's flat, but each time he couldn't remember the exact address. He could only recall number 65 near Woodgreen Station. He gave up and caught the Piccadilly line back to his flat and got changed. 
He put the suit he had been wearing in a plastic bag and placed it under a kitchen cabinet before hiding the knife under the sofa. He made some coffee and not long after his partner came home, Robert then left to collect some money he was owed from his last workplace. He again called the police to see if they had discovered the body. Introducing himself, he said, this is Bob. Sergeant Scott on the other end of the line asked, Bob Maudsley? Yes, Robert said. Have you found the body? Sergeant Scott replied, No, not yet. What happened? It's near Wood Green Tube. I've murdered him, said Robert. What did you do? I stabbed him. I've been home to change my clothes and I'm going to the cinema. Sergeant Scott asked, Do you know the name of the street? Robert replied, No. He agreed to meet an officer outside at 9pm then disconnected the call. He ate dinner at the Regent Palace Hotel and went to the cinema before visiting an arcade. After that, at 7.10pm, he went to a phone box and again called Wood Green Police Station. He described what he was wearing to the operator so he could be identified easily and said, Please come quietly. He was told, We will be there in a couple of minutes. Two police officers met him, Sergeant Elman and PC Tully. They parked up and walked towards the phone box as Robert Maudsley approached them. He spoke first. I've been waiting for you. I'm glad you came. I killed a man this morning. He was cautioned, but Robert spoke again. I had to. He was asked, what do you mean you had to? I told them at the hospital I had to do it. Sergeant Elman asked, now Bob, what's this all about? Well, as I told you on the phone before, I went to this house near a green, number 65, I think, and I killed this man. Robert Maudsley got in the back of the police car, directing the officers in the front. He soon said, that's the one, before changing his mind and pointing to the one next door. They all got out of the car and approached the flat. They rang the doorbell and a woman answered. As she was speaking, Robert interjected, Is John in? Which one? she replied. He pointed to the bedroom doors. That one, two along. As Sergeant Elman entered the corridor, the tenant had already reached John's door. She called to officers, I think he's in, I can hear his wireless. She opened the door, enough to get her head into the room, before the body of John Farrell stopped her from opening it any further. She recalled back swiftly, before an officer caught her and then poked his head through the gap. John was on the floor, his legs facing the door. Robert Maudsley spoke in what the sergeant described as a laughing manner. I did it, didn't I? Killed him. Why did you do it, Bob? He responded, I had to kill someone, so I picked up this fella John last night and killed him today. At Wood Green Police Station, Robert Maudsley made a full and detailed confession. At the end, he asked the superintendent conducting the interview, Is this real? And the superintendent replied, Unfortunately, young man, this is for real. A variety of evidence was collected from both John Farrell's home and Robert Maudsley's flat. It included, amongst other things, a light blue blood-stained suit a knife in a white sheath, blood-stained towel and a stained palm print on the banister leading up to the first floor bathroom. 
there was also a mug which Robert Maudsley drank from. Photographic evidence was taken of the scene and a statement was taken from John H. on the day of Robert's arrest. John H. was the man Robert Maudsley shared a flat with. Robert referred to him as his husband in the police interview, but John H. referred to Robert as his flatmate. John H. said he remembered Robert wearing a light blue suit the night before. Robert told him he was going to the cinema, though his partner didn't return that night. The next day, about 12.30pm, John H. saw Robert again, this time wearing a brown suit. Robert told John H. he had met an old friend at the cinema and stayed at his place, but didn't name the friend. An hour later, he left their home saying he was going to collect his paycheck and then go to the employment exchange. The post-mortem of John Farrell found no defensive wounds or bruising. He had been stabbed a total of five times. The fatal injury penetrated below the sternum, went through the aorta, the largest artery in the body, and into the abdomen. Robert Maudsley was deemed unfit to stand trial for John Farrell's murder. He was sent to Broadmoor, a high-security psychiatric hospital in Berkshire, Broadmoor is where many subjects from previous episodes of this podcast have spent time. Charles Bronson, June and Jennifer Gibbons, Ronnie Cray, to name a few. Robert's first nickname while being treated was Blue. This, like all the names that followed, was in poor taste. Blue, because it was the colour his victim John Farrell turned after he was attacked. For three years, Robert remained in Broadmoor and wasn't involved in any major incidents until February 26, 1977, when Robert Maudsley and a friend, David Cheeseman, turned on another patient. After a number of patients were allowed out of their cells to participate in a football match, David Cheeseman and Robert Maudsley dragged convicted paedophile, 26-year-old David Allen Francis, out of his room and through the corridor towards the changing rooms. Different staff heard the shouting and tried to intervene, but both patients had armed themselves with makeshift weapons fashioned from a broken radio. David Cheeseman told Robert Maudsley that he had found out from a mutual friend that David Francis had sexually assaulted him. He claimed Robert responded, Francis will forfeit his life at my hands. The two men took David Francis into the boot room next to the changing area, barricaded the door shut, and tied him up with the wire flex from a record player. Shouts and screams could be heard outside as the two men tortured their victim. They finally garroted him, then lifted up his body so he could be viewed by the nurses outside. After the guards finally gained access to the room, it was alleged one of them later told the press that David Francis's head had been cracked open like an egg. It was reported that a spoon was hanging out of it, and some of his brains were missing. The new temporary nickname bestowed upon Robert Maudsley was Spoons. The two patients planned to get David Francis to admit to the assault and at the same time be in the position to be able to barter for better living conditions. David Cheeseman later told police he took part in the murder to get out of Broadmoor and be sent to prison. Despite being declared unfit to stand trial for the first murder he committed, Robert Maudsley would stand trial this time. He told the judge at Reading Crown Court, I'll do it again if you send me back. 
both Robert Maudsley and David Cheeseman were charged with manslaughter and sentenced to life in prison. The judge heard from the prosecutor how David Cheeseman was seen at the beginning of the incident holding something silver to the throat of David Francis. It looked like a knife, but it was likely a piece of folded silver paper. At around 1pm on February 26th, staff could hear David Francis being beaten. David Cheeseman mimed violent actions to the nurses outside. Their captive called out, Why don't you just kill me? The court was told there was banging and crashing and a very loud gushing sound before the sound of drumming feet on the floor as if someone was in their death throes. The prosecution said it would appear that about two o'clock on that afternoon, David Francis met his death in that boot room. The pair had confessed to police they planned the murder three days beforehand. They had shuffled around furniture in the room to make it easier to barricade themselves and their hostage in when the time came. They chose the method of death for their captive. They wanted to use the wires from an old coin machine to electrocute him, but when that didn't work, they opted for a garrote because they claimed it was a quick and handy method. Robert Maudsley and David Cheeseman were transferred to Wakefield Prison, dubbed Monster Mansion, as it's known to house some of the UK's most notorious criminals. When Robert arrived, the inmates already knew who he was and had new nicknames waiting for him. The prisoners referred to him as Cannibal and Brain Eater. The name inspiration came from a newspaper which called Robert Maudsley Hannibal the Cannibal, claiming that he ate part of his victim's brain. Upon his arrival, an internal report questioned why Robert Maudsley wasn't getting psychiatric treatment. Paul Maudsley heard about a double murder, so wrote to the prison service to confirm if his brother Robert was involved. The sibling had been told Robert was dead, but he was in fact alive and a notorious inmate. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, 
You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. After a few weeks in prison, rumors began to circulate. Inmates said Robert Maudsley had told them he wanted to kill seven people. On July 29, 1978, he tried to lure potential victims, the inmates of A-Wing, into his cell. His fellow prisoners were declining his invitation and later said he had murder in his eyes. Eventually, Salney Darwood walked into Robert's trap. The 46-year-old was serving time for killing his wife Blanche. He strangled her after an argument over a TV program at the home they shared in Luton. He pleaded guilty due to diminished responsibility and received life in prison, but only a year later, Salney Darwood would walk into Robert Maudsley's cell. As soon as he walked through the door, he was attacked by Robert, who used a spoon sharpened to a point to stab his victim to death. Robert pushed Salney's lifeless body under his bunk to conceal the crime long enough for him to attack another victim. He tried to get other prisoners to go into his cell, but when they refused, Robert got desperate and went into the cell of William Roberts, who was lying on his bunk. The 55-year-old Sheffield native was serving seven years for strangling a four-year-old girl in order to rape her. After Robert Maudsley attacked him and smashed his head against the cell wall, Robert casually approached a member of prison staff and stated, they'll be too short on the roll call, before putting his makeshift knife on the table. When staff came across William Roberts, he was barely clinging to life, so was quickly rushed to Wakefield Hospital and put on life support. His injuries were too substantial, and 18 hours later, he was dead. The press kept relatively quiet about the incident, so much so that William's wife Doreen was informed her husband had been in an accident. It wasn't until she heard a snippet about the crime on the radio, she realised the accident was actually a murder. In Leeds Crown Court, Robert Maudsley's hearing was brief. His lawyers put forth the defence that the murders were a result of pent-up aggression after a childhood of near-constant abuse. Robert Maudsley himself said, When I kill, I think I have my parents in mind. If I had killed my parents in 1970... None of these people need have died. If I had killed them, then I would be walking around as a free man without a care in the world. He was given two life sentences. Robert Maudsley's counsel said, 
His client has a life stretching before him like a caged animal, perhaps 50 years. The judge addressed Robert and stated, At present I see no reason why you should ever be released. Robert Maudsley was sent back to Wakefield. His track record made it dangerous, possibly lethal, to mix him with other prisoners and have unnecessary contact with staff. He was confined to solitary, and in August 1983 the new cells in the basement of F-Wing were built to house Robert Maudsley and prisoners like him. After four years in solitary confinement, Robert Maudsley was permitted to speak to the BBC. They had been negotiating with the Home Office for five months before finally being granted access to interview him. A still photograph from the time shows Robert Maudsley surrounded by five guards, a team of three BBC reporters and their equipment, all squeezed into his tiny prison cell. Robert described his home as a concrete coffin. His window faces out onto the yard, where he has one hour of exercise a day under the watch of five guards. Ian Dunbar, the governor of Wakefield at the time, made a comment regarding the use of solitary confinement in prison. He said because of understaffing, it is impossible to do away with solitary confinement. After the interview, the crew spoke to another inmate, and it became clear that they would be fearful of Robert Maudsley being returned to live in the general population. But on the other hand, the prisoner thought that solitary confinement was cruel and Robert would be better suited to serving time in Broadmoor. Robert Maudsley has been moved to a number of prisons since his last murders, but he always seems to end up back in the glass cage in Wakefield. For a time he resided at Wood Hill in Milton Keynes. He was placed in an experimental control unit on the prison's D-Wing, which would hold up to 48 of the country's most violent and disruptive inmates. But flaws were discovered in the new system in which prisoners had to earn incentives as it wasn't effective for every inmate. In the academic evaluation, it stated that the sparseness of the regime at Woodhill in many cases led to prisoner hostility. The findings also showed an increase in abuse and assaults on staff and prison wardens. Robert Maudsley also spent a few years in Parkhurst Prison on the Isle of Wight. He had sessions with psychiatrist Dr. Bob Johnson. The doctor had also treated David Cheeseman, who later credited Dr. Johnson for getting to the root of his anger. The doctor felt progress was being made with Robert Maudsley, so much so he believed that they had worked three quarters of the way through the violence and aggression that made him such a danger. However, the doctor had to cease treatment after three years when Robert Maudsley returned to Wakefield and the therapeutic wing at Parkhurst was shut down by the Home Secretary after four inmates escaped. Paul Maudsley, Robert's brother, spoke to the press in 2000. He said, As far as I can tell, the prison authorities are trying to break him. Every time they see him making a little progress, they throw a spanner in the works. He spent time in Woodhill Prison, and there he was getting on well with the staff, even playing chess with them. He had access to books and music and television. Now they have put him back in the cage of Wakefield. His trouble started because he got locked up as a kid. All they do when they put him back there is bring all the trauma back to him. Also in 2000, Robert Maudsley sent numerous letters to the Times newspaper. He requested some comforts to make life in solitary more bearable, 
classical music tapes, a television, pictures, toiletries, and a budgerigar. One of the letters read, If the prison service says no, then I ask for a simple cyanide capsule, which I shall willingly take, and the problem of Robert John Maudsley can easily and swiftly be resolved. I am left to stagnate, vegetate, and to regress, left to confront my solitary head-on with people who have eyes but don't see, and who have ears but don't hear, who have mouths but don't speak. In another letter, he asked, why can't I have a budgie instead of the flies and cockroaches and spiders I currently have? I promise to love it and not eat it. The chief inspector of prisons at the time expressed his reservations about prisoners in extreme isolation, voicing concerns about the mental health of the inmate and the legality of the practice. In 2001, Wakefield Prison invested £500,000 in a new exceptional risk regime to house high-risk prisoners like Robert Maudsley. The new regime hoped to give prisoners more stimulation with televisions and games consoles permitted in cells and more opportunity to exercise, use the telephone and see visitors. In addition, wardens would not wear full riot gear when the inmates were removed from their cells. Director General of the Prison Service Martin Neri commented on the arrangement. He said it was a long-term commitment of a small number of prisoners who are too dangerous or disruptive to progress or are not capable of progressing. He said, I do not expect prisoners to die there. I expect them to move on when their dangerousness is reduced. But that could take a long time. So where are we now? David Cheeseman has since changed his name to David Land. He filed a press complaint against the Daily Mail from his cell in Norwich Prison. He disputed the newspaper reports that David Francis, who was murdered by David Cheeseman and Robert Maudsley in Broadmoor, had his head cracked open and parts of his brains removed. The complaint was reviewed by the Press Complaints Commission and the outcome read as follows. An article on Broadmoor of the 24th of November 2008 stated that after Robert Maudsley and another patient had tortured and killed a paedophile in 1977, the man's skull had been cracked open like a boiled egg, with part of the brain missing and a spoon hanging out of the cranium. We have now been informed that the autopsy report into the death made clear that the skull is intact and the brain shows no gross evidence of injury. Robert Maudsley's nickname, Hannibal the Cannibal, was based on the assumption that he was responsible for eating part of David Francis's brain. Though the murder was brutal, there is no evidence that cannibalism took place, but the name has still stuck. In 2002, David Lant, formerly David Cheeseman, was sent to an open prison in Hosley Bay in Suffolk but he was again arrested in October 2004 when it was alleged while on day release the 61-year-old attacked a 16-year-old girl over a period of five hours in a caravan he owned with his wife in Thurston near Bury St Edmunds. He was part of a pre-release scheme so was allowed to leave prison on licence in the day and return every night after working at the Salvation Army Hostel in Ipswich. The case was brought to trial with the charge of attempted rape and five other charges of sexual assault. He was returned to a closed prison directly after the accusation. 
The teenager, who cannot be named for legal reasons, told the court she met David Lant at a petrol station because he wanted to give her £50 that he owed to her boyfriend. David Lant persuaded her to return with him to his caravan, saying he had to rush back, believing he'd left the electric on. When they arrived, she claimed he offered her £200 to have sex with him. She refused and said that he picked up a carving knife and threw it across the caravan. In the courtroom, she said I screamed at the knife. He was threatening me and I was crying and he touched me without my consent. The prosecutor told the court that David Lant later drove the teenager to a park near his prison. While there, further sexual assaults took place in the back of his car. After the attack, he drove her back to Ipswich, by which time it would have been a full five hours from when they first met. David Lant told the court that the sexual activity had been consensual after a financial agreement between the two. He also said that he suffered from a medical condition which meant he couldn't get an erection. He said he just got pleasure from kissing and caressing the teenager. The jurors were told that the defendant was left impotent after a prostate operation and in 2003 he had been prescribed Viagra but it wasn't effective. A jury of eight women and four men at Ipswich Crown Court acquitted David Lant on July 5th, 2006. The teenager's grandmother who attended the trial spoke outside the court and said she was flabbergasted. David Lant was acquitted of all charges but remained in prison. After a fact-find hearing in September 2009 in which the alleged victim spoke to the parole board about her ordeal, the parole board said they were satisfied on the balance of probabilities that consent was not given. In December 2010, David Lant wanted to take the case to the High Court in London. Stanley Best, his barrister, said the trolls conducted in such a way that David Lant could not see the alleged victim and he felt this was unfair. In addition, he told the judge, as well as not being able to see the woman, the way the room was positioned meant that he could not hear anything she said. David Lant's High Court request was turned down by Judge Michael K. QC. The judge disagreed with the claim that the parole hearing was unfair and said the appeal was totally without merit and also explained that the High Court challenge was made too long after the decision was made. The judge said the witness was for the second time having to give evidence about highly distressing sexual activity in relation to Mr. Lant. In February 2013, David Lant spoke to InsideTime.org a national newspaper for prisoners and detainees. He said, at this point, I have served a further eight years back in closed conditions, the equivalent of a 16-year fixed-term sentence for false allegations which resulted in my acquittal. Over the years, Robert Maudsley has had an off-and-on friendship with Charles Bronson, now known as Charles Salvador as they often find themselves staying in the same prisons in solitary confinement. Frequently, they can communicate by shouting at each other or by passing written correspondence. In 2004, Robert Maudsley wrote to the judge at Charles Salvador's parole hearing on Charles's behalf. But by 2008, the two were in a feud after Charles Salvador gifted him a Seiko watch. Charlie gave the watch to a guard to pass on. As the watch was handed over to him, Robert responded, 
I'm never getting out. What do I want to watch for? Give it back. After the guard returned the watch, Charlie shouted that Robert was an ungrateful bastard before Robert replied that he would stab out Charlie's eyes and eat his heart. Charles would later say of Robert Maudsley, maybe the untold solitary years have made him madder. Robert Maudsley's nephew, Gavin Maudsley, spoke to the Sun newspaper about his uncle in August 2017. He mentioned a recent incident where Robert hit a guard with a tray. He said they used to always slide it under the door, but I guess on this occasion they went inside the cell. Bob grabbed the tray and smashed it over his head. He was angry because they put this crazy person on his wing and he'd spent all night screaming and keeping everyone awake. Attacking the guard was the only way he could make his voice heard. According to Gavin, his uncle has found acceptance. He said he lives in his own little world. He's got his TV and his music and his PlayStation 2. His favourite game is Call of Duty. He tells me he is content with his life and he does genuinely seem happy. He accepts he is going to die in jail and he has no problem with that. He says there are so many bad people in the real world he would rather be on his own. Robert John Maudsley has spent nearly 40 years in solitary confinement. Thank you for listening and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. To support They Walk Among Us and receive ad-free episodes and other extras, just head to patreon.com forward slash They Walk Among Us. You can follow us on Twitter at TWAU underscore podcast or follow us on Instagram and Facebook under They Walk Among Us podcast. Suspected leader of a capital region cult. He's been charged with sex trafficking and forced labor. The most searing, awful pain was being dragged across my body. What happens when someone you know tries to take down a bizarre self-help group she's been a part of for 12 years? I'm thinking, how am I going to get out of here? Like, literally, where is the back door? How do I escape? Escaping Nexium from CBC Podcasts Uncover. Subscribe now at cbc.ca slash uncover. 